welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. For those of you I haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Scott, and I serve as parish pastor here in Inglewood. And over the summer months, you may not have seen as much of me, in part because many of you... We're living your best lives away from here, right? Traveling and resting and stampeding and camping and adventuring, really just fitting in as much good sun time as we can before the snow flies again, which it kind of feels like it's going to today. It's not going to, I promise, I promise. The point is, is that it's so good to see the many places that so many of you have gone. Thanks for sharing your lives on social media so that we can stay in touch with each other. And truth be told though, we may have missed each other as well because I have not been up here teaching as much over the summer. I had a little bit of a break, and breaks are great, but one of my favorite things about Summer at Commons is having other voices in our community step into this space and shape our imaginations, and I hope that you enjoyed that along with our journey through several of the Psalms as much as I did. And with that said, I am back up here today and super excited about where we are going, and speaking of which, I hope some of you have had a chance to glance at your new journal. Some of us here at Commons are familiar with our journal project. This is something we do every fall. We put it together, and some of you have been anxiously waiting for your new one. And then certainly, there are some of you who are new to Commons here today, and we welcome you, and we want to invite you to pick up one of our journals today, because you can learn a lot about our community, and this journal can help you out with that. The first half is about um, who we are, and lots of that information you can find both in that book and then also online through our various websites. Some of it is our history, some info about who leads our community, and then there are some hints about how you can get connected when you are ready. And the second half of our journal is actually an outline of our teaching path over the next year, and it gives you some space to take notes and record some reflections, and if you need to, you can doodle in there as well. Now, if you are settling in with us, you're always invited to text or shoot a text to the number that we put up on the screens. Now, coincidentally, we're having some screen issues here today, so you're not gonna have that number. So no text today, I'm sorry. The point is, is that you can always stop at the Connection Center to ask any questions you have there because we always have people available and lots of our information is, is available through our commons.net website, which Maddie outlined for you a second ago. Now, the other thing that Maddie was talking about is this first steps initiative that we are launching, this four-week course designed to help you get up to speed and get connected and serving in ways that are meaningful for you as quickly as you'd like. So if you're still getting to know us here at Commons, we invite you to take your time, but we want you to know that we are ready for you with some options when you are ready because we are always looking for ways to make joining our community and finding a meaningful space. We try to make that as easy as possible. So thank you for joining us today. Now, if you have your journal, we're just going to look at a few highlights because today we are leading off with this series entitled Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get back to that in a moment. We're going to be there for a big chunk of the fall, and then in January, we are going to start 2020. It's a bit terrifying to say that. We're going to start that by picking up a series called Swipe Right, where we are going to talk about all the different elements of our relationships. Then during Lent, we are going to turn to the story of Jonah. This is probably my favorite artwork in the journal this year. This is a mythical tale that we tell to children. In fact, we've been telling it for years and years and years, and really, there's a lot going on in this story for adults, too. So we're going to take a look at that. And then after Easter, we're going to talk about our big mouths. 
You know, all the ways that we wish we hadn't said that thing and all the ways that our words get us into trouble. And some of us are going to need that series and I'm not looking at anybody and please don't look at anybody, right? You're looking at your partner or something. Anyway, the point is, is that this is meant to just give you a little bit of a highlight reel. It is going to be a fun year together in part because of these things I've just mentioned, but also because as we do every year, we've scheduled some time to be in the Hebrew scriptures. We're gonna look at an early Christian letter. We're gonna ground ourselves in the words and the teaching of Jesus, which is where we find ourselves today. In this collection of sayings that many feel reveals Jesus at his most distilled. And we've got some work today, or work to do today, talking about a story within a story and cumulative grace and a whole lot of paradox. And we're gonna get into that, but first would you join me in a moment of prayer. God, of light and love that sustain us, and of grace and mercy that keep us. God, of the church and this community that stretch us and teach us, and remind us that we are not alone. We are grateful for the blessing of this community, the celebration of this day, and we're thankful for your faithfulness to commons, for the ways that we continue to grow and mature as we come together. And we are thankful for the chance to celebrate another year and another opportunity to look ahead at where you might be taking us. And we ask that you would be our guide, that Jesus, your character, would be a beacon for us, that spirit, your energy would be our strength and our source. Yes, of course, so that our hearts would be lifted in these places maybe that we sensed need and weakness today. But then also so that our homes and our neighborhoods, the places where we do our work and we give our energy, that these places would come alive with the hope of a world made new. These things we ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, so Sermon on the Mount. And as we get going, I want to start by offering a little bit of a disclaimer. Because yes, we are going to be spending eight weeks looking at this collection of sayings from Jesus, the version of them found in Matthew's Gospel. And I want to acknowledge that as we will be writing sermons about a sermon, and you will be listening to sermons about a sermon, and as we will find in a couple of weeks, we are gonna be listening to a sermon about a sermon that's actually about a sermon, you're gonna start feeling maybe like you're in a bit of a time-space continuum, or more correctly, that the sermon has mimicked the Drosta effect. And some of you might be familiar with this. This is when a picture appears within itself over and over and over again. You guys know what I'm talking about? This name actually comes from this Dutch cocoa brand in the early 1900s. And their packaging tin had this picture of a nun on it. And I had a picture, but it's not working. So you'll just have to imagine or look it up when you go home. The Drosta effect had this, or the Drosta company had this picture of a, uh, a nun holding a tin that had a picture of a nun holding a tin that had a picture of a nun holding, you guys get it, right? And this is similar to the way that maybe you have been in a, like a public restroom that had off-facing mirrors and they create this infinity mirror effect, or maybe it's more like the practice in filmmaking where a dream is depicted as being inside of a dream, made famous by Christopher Nolan's Inception, of course. And listen, God knows that some of us have sat in some sermons that felt like they would never end, or they felt maybe like a poorly constructed dream sequence. And I'm gonna stop talking about this because the jury's still out on where we're going today. And while I'm joking, of course, I only mention this to say that I think sermons, 
at their best, do use this effect. Where whether they ask us to think about Jesus performing a sermon on a hillside or not, they do ask us to look at an ancient story that the longer we look at it, we start to see that it isn't ancient at all. It's our story. It's our experience in the world. And it's our culture and our challenges and our suffering, all of these things found in the divine story. And where when we look at Jesus, we could imagine and we should imagine the wrinkles around his eyes from squinting at the glare off the water and we should see the sweat stains in his clothes. We we should see the pain and the difficulty and the harshness of his world where we also will catch a glimpse of this divine way of being in his actions, which were so much more compassionate and widely expansive in how they teach us to welcome each other. And I hope as we read this sermon and we contemplate these things together, you're gonna be able to see your story in this far grander one. With all of its wrinkles and its imperfections intact, yes, but with the beauty and the potential that it has right underneath the surface. Which you might be thinking, Scott, don't oversell this whole preaching thing, all right? You're up there for half an hour, don't oversell it. And I get that, but I really do think that there's something special when we look at these texts. And I hope that you'll discover this as we look at these words of Jesus, which I wanna jump right into. The sermon that we're looking at is found in Matthew's Gospel. It takes a couple of chapters there, and what we're gonna do each week is pick up a small section and work through it together. And today, we're looking at a few verses that will be familiar to some of us. And we don't have time to look at them all in detail, but I do wanna read them all to you, and this will be especially important because we don't have the screens there. The story goes that Jesus saw the crowds And he went up on the mountainside and he sat down there and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they are the ones who will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad then, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, This is a series of statements that we call the Beatitudes, and we're gonna come to those in a second because first I wanna make a quick observation about what we're given in the setting here. Because English translators do something in verse one that helps helps us make sense of the way things work and how our Bibles are put together. See, where the Greek text literally says that he saw the crowds and he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and he took a breath and his disciples gathered around him and and he taught them, English translators don't leave us to wonder about who this he is that the text is talking about. And truth is, most of the kids in Commons kids would know that Jesus is the answer to most of the questions. And the point is that the Greek text at the beginning of this chapter doesn't state this. It's not that it's ambiguous about who it's talking about. It's that it assumes that we've read the backstory. 
It assumes that we know the details of the person that it's been talking about for four chapters already, which we should take note of. How, for instance, in Matthew 1, Jesus' family line is traced back into the long history of God's presence with the Hebrew slaves and the Israelite nation, all the way back to God's promise to draw all people to God's self. And then in Matthew 2, we see how Jesus' life is opposed by imperial powers in his own time. And ultimately how his destiny, his human life, is shaped by timely deliverance, people stepping in and advocating for him. Matthew 3 shows us how Jesus follows the work of his cousin John, this guy who loudly confronts the religious authorities of his day and comforts those who are walking around longing for redemption in the first century. And then in Matthew 4, we see Jesus persisting against temptation. We see him starting this public work that he's gonna do, and he's advocating and he's caring for the marginalized and the ill and those who are disturbed in their minds. And as a result, people start to follow Jesus. And this is where the story picks up today. But here's the deal. Commentators and scholars and theologians and teachers like to make a lot of noise about the sermon Jesus preaches, which is fine. There's lots of good stuff in there. That's what we're coming to. But I think that sometimes we fail to do something with the story of Jesus when we don't recognize that it unfolds over a bit of a time lapse or more specifically, how Jesus probably didn't just cook this content up quickly that morning, how he didn't just jot some notes down when he noticed he had a bit of an audience. No, what's or what taking stock of chapters one to four shows us in this moment is that in all of its clarity and all of its gravitas in this sermon, we need to see it as a product of lived experience and the investment of others because you can't just Messiah on your own. And then it's also this product of a long and quiet, drawn out work of God in Jesus. And I think maybe that that's something that we should take with us. I mean, do you give yourself grace when you get passed up for a promotion because you don't have the skills that another person does? And you shouldn't have those skills because you need more practice and you need more experience. Or are you kind when your children show yet again, time and time again, that character and kindness are a work in progress? That they can't just download how to stop being selfish? <sighs> it's close to home. Do you, do you find yourself constantly looking ahead to who you want to be, or what you want to achieve, or who you think you should have already become? And you neglect, as you look, you neglect your inventory of a history and you neglect the history of the people around you, these things that are records of how far we've actually come and how much change has already happened. Because that's what strikes me about this sermon text in the intro Matthew gives, how Jesus never could have given this sermon if not for the path that he walked and the support he received and the training he was offered and the living that he'd already done, and just like you and I, how we only reach our brightest moments, those spaces of maturity and wholeness that we long for, we only reach them because grace is so often cumulative, which is something worth remembering, that Jesus didn't wing his best sermon, just like you can't whip up or conjure some best version of yourself. 
No, the story of the divine in Christ teaches us to hope that grace is doing its work. It did it in Jesus, and it's doing it in you too. So Jesus sits down, and he starts teaching these people who are following him. And he lays out this series of statements. And stay with me here because we need to do a little bit of vocab work quick. See, beatitude, this word that we use, is a transliteration of the Latin word beatus, just meaning happy or blissful or flourishing. And it is the Latin translation for the Greek word found in our New Testament manuscripts, which is the word makarios. And this is a tricky term that gets biblical scholars doing all kinds of things. See, the NIV, which I read to you earlier, has the first beatitude as blessed are the poor in spirit. But then you've got Eugene Peterson translating it, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. And the common English Bible says happy are the people who are hopeless, which doesn't make any sense. And then the New Living Translation goes with God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for God which is just another example of how hard translation is. And to be honest, this is hard enough when two people speaking the same language don't agree on what words mean. And I'll give you an example. Not that long ago, our son was eating something messy, like a piece of toast just burnt, and he wasn't eating over a plate, and he wasn't eating over a table or any sort of catching device. So I was irritated, and so I said, Bud, you're getting crumbs all over everything. To which he replied, Dad, if I was getting crumbs on everything, they'd be on my head and they'd be on the dog and I literally just chased him out of the room. I was like, I don't have time for your sass, get out of here. And really, the this is like the challenge for translators and we see it in this text, how it comes down to figuring out what a word means and more specifically what translators of this text have to do is they have to figure out what to do with this Hebrew term that Jesus may have been familiar with as he preached, the word ashar which is this term used in the wisdom literature and it calls people blessed, that's what it translates as, it calls people blessed because they've chosen a good and wise way of being in the world, because they've found a sure way to flourish. What ashar does not mean, or what it doesn't describe is how God blesses or favors some people over others, or specifically those who follow all the rules. And this matters because ashar is the word that's directly translated from Hebrew texts into Greek as makarios, which is this word blessed at the beginning of each beatitude. And that just means that this ancient author, and therefore the tradition of Jesus' teaching, was not implying that being blessed is directly correlated to this idea of somehow earning divine favor. This idea that certain actions earn spiritual points and translate into some kind of good life. Literally, the Greek says that those who are poor in spirit flourish because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And the Greek adjective for poor here literally means poor. It means destitute. In fact, in Luke's gospel, which tells this same story, it doesn't include the in the spirit clause. It just refers to those with low socioeconomic status, which makes sense given that Roman society around Jesus was super unequal and about 3% of the population was holding power and using every method it had to keep that power for themselves. But guess what? Matthew adds this clause, poor in spirit. 
And while some commentators like to make Matthew's language more spiritual and do something with it, Warren Carter, biblical commentator, he warns us against this. He says that these people aren't the humble, they're not the voluntary poor, they're not the deserving poor, they're not the lazy poor. They're not those with soft spiritual dispositions or more patient or any other spiritualization. They are the literal poor, those without options and with few resources. And he contends that this in spirit clause that Matthew adds refers to those who have been deprived of spiritual resources such as hope and dignity, respect and value that we all carry as human beings. Those people in the world who are crushed by systems and powers and made to feel hopeless and desperate. Jesus is talking about anyone who can't do anything about who and where they are. Which I think is a compelling way to hear what Jesus is saying. Because there is no implication in these beatitudes that God's kingdom, whether now or in the future, will belong to those who figure out how bad they have it and then clamor to fix themselves. There's no hint that God's imagination for renewal requires those who are broken or shattered or all boxed in show that they show some gumption which will somehow earn the divine favor that they need to change their circumstances. In effect, actually, it says the opposite. It says that those who can't do anything, they're blessed. Their lives have this ashar quality. They're the ones that God's kingdom sweeps up, which is maybe something that you need to hear because maybe you're poor. Maybe circumstances have changed for you. There's been a failed career move. Our relationships dissolved, just economic downturn in our city, and you've been left to piece together what you thought life would be like with less than you feel you need. Or maybe your body's failing. Maybe you're ill or you've just received a really tough diagnosis or you've been injured and so you end up having too little strength to do what you have to do each day. Or maybe your spirit is actually what's crushed. And maybe that's something as simple as some steady anxiety, or it's a toxic work environment where you aren't respected. Or maybe it's a series of choices that others have made that have betrayed you and left you feeling like you can't do anything to change any of it. And please hear me, I can't imagine how that might feel, and I don't intend to offer you cheap words in the hopes that they will numb the pain that you're experiencing, but I do want to make clear the paradox of all that Jesus came to say in this sermon and in his life. This audacious claim that what qualifies us for the world that God's making is not our goodness or our resources or even our morality. That the measure of your closeness to God right now is not your strength or your ability to get past your grief, which are the things that the next two Beatitudes point to. No, in fact, what grants you passage into God's future is what you can't do. Where perhaps you find that in those moments when you feel you lack agency with tragedy striking and illness looming and betrayal sideswiping, there is where you find yourself least resistant to the help you need. And that might be the skill of a counselor, it might be the tenderness of a friend, it might be the welcome of a community. 
It might just be the courage that wells up in your own soul to let go of some hollow version of yourself that you've been holding on to and embrace who you are growing and emerging to become day by day. Guess what, friends? This is the kingdom of heaven come near. And it is our hope, paradox, that it is. Now, it's that paradox that I wanna hold on to for just a moment, but first, a quick story. Some of you may not know that I pursued a career in university education and research before coming to Commons, and I've shared a little bit in this community about how my education really fed into my love for ideas, which led me to some wonderful institutions. It introduced me to some beautiful people, and it shaped the rabid curiosity that I still carry today. I've also shared a little bit about how some of that journey led me into some difficult moments and how my exploration of ideas and texts and theories really did lead me on a quest to figure out if Jesus could be found at the bottom of our best questions and the rabbit holes that those questions send us down. And ultimately, how my faith was kept by the gritty poetry of the Psalms, where questions and praise are held together in the same poem. Anyway, in my primary discipline of sociology, there's this system of theories that have to developed to explain the way that our cultures and our institutions work. And it's called the sociology of knowledge. And its basic premise is that we are socially conditioned to believe and behave the way we do. Reality is constructed for us, around us, and we in turn help to do the same for others. And this includes our morality and our ethics and yes, of course, our religion. And there came a point where I had to reconcile a faith that I knew I had just inherited with these theories. And I had to grapple with whether that faith was something that I wanted to move forward with. And I can't remember a specific moment when this happened. But eventually I came to a place where I was willing to say this. You know what? Some days I'm not sure I can check all the important Christian boxes. Some days I'm not sure I'm faithful or I'm believing or whatever I'm supposed to be, but I have to, or rather I get to, decide what kind of world I'm gonna help build, the kind of life I'm gonna construct. And what grew in me was this conviction that even when I can't believe or even when I feel like I'm not very good at it, I wanna build a world that looks like the one that Jesus imagined. Like when he says in this sermon that those who are longing for righteousness, which might better be translated justice, when he says that those people will be satisfied, when he tells me that when I offer others mercy, I actually choose a sure way to flourish in the world, when he dreams of you and me standing as peacemakers, offering ourselves and our bodies for peace in our families, in our workplaces, in all kinds and moments of hostility. And when he says that we might face opposition because of our pursuit of a more just world, with people insulting and saying things about us and harassing us in our efforts to be like Jesus, it's then that we know that we've found the way of life And therein lies the glorious paradox again, that the kingdom comes to me and you in what we cannot do. Okay, 
but that it also comes alive in what we choose to do. Feeble and inconsequential those efforts may seem sometimes, maybe when we're offering food and shelter and company to our siblings in this city, maybe when we're waking up to the ways that I, with my position, yes, I have resources, how can I demand justice for those who are starving for justice? What about the equality that needs to be offered and given to the marginalized, invited into shared space and shared autonomy? with mercy extended to those I love and those who hurt me and hopefully too to myself along the way. And guess what, friends? I'm so grateful for a community like ours where I feel like those efforts are not offered on their own. So, as we begin with a sermon, may you sense an excitement about where we're going and about where you might start to see this divine story wrapping, sweeping around the the details of your own. May you discover grace's cumulative work in you, how it's moving you forward, making you whole, and how you can't fast forward, so just take it in. May you receive the restoration that comes to you when you literally can do nothing to encourage it. And may you hear the invitation to dream of the world Jesus imagined, stepping toward it in new ways this year in the hopes that flourishing life would be seen and found by all. Let's pray. God. We're present in this moment to the ways that your story comes and surrounds each of the individual tales and strands that we brought with us today. And I would imagine that some of us feel quite fraught. Maybe there's parts of our stories that feel like they don't belong. There's parts maybe that we're trying to get away from. And ultimately we pray that you would give us this image of how the sacred story as we look at it has a way of bringing things together. Tying the hope that we have together with the hope of those around us so that we can work for change and wholeness for others. I pray that you would give us strength as we search out your cumulative work in us, that you would teach us when we are rushing and when we are worrying and when we are anxious to trust that you are moving us along and that you would give us courage to embrace what we cannot do as the source of your great goodness to us. And that in response to that, we would pick up with strength the ways to live into what we can do. I'm grateful for the blessing of this time. We thank you for the chance to celebrate together today. Celebrating your faithfulness, we ask now for your blessing as we go in the name of Christ. Amen.